0: Today, we are sponsored by Provider Solutions and Development, a community of experts dedicated to offering holistic career coaching to physicians and clinicians throughout the entire job search. Start the conversation today at psdrecruit.com forward slash curbsiders.
1: The Curbsiders have partnered with VCU Health Continuing Education to offer free continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org to create your free account and to start claiming CE credit.
0: paul stewart it was another great one well hi we, matt we just talked are we starting we are starting stewart which is why you're interrupting me so we all talked about uh breast cancer screening tonight we also talked about how to work up uh the uh breast lump and we had a fantastic guest and a fantastic producer who we'll introduce in a moment here but paul first can you remind people what do we do on this show
1: Such a great question. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And our amazing producer brought us an amazing guest to bring us amazing clinical pearls. So we have the good fortune to have Dr. Nora Plaut at Toronto with us, who brings us our guest today. And I'm going to let uh, Dr. Toronto tell us all about who we talked to and what we talked about.
3: Hey, all. Um, I'm so excited about this episode. We just had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Nancy Keating. She is a general internist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, as well as a researcher in the Department of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School, not to mention one of the fabulous Wednesday Phyllis Gen Center preceptors where my primary care clinic is. Um, Her research examines provider, patient, and health system factors that influence the delivery of high-quality care for individuals at risk for or diagnosed with cancer. She's authored a number of reviews and research studies examining breast cancer screening and is quite enthusiastic about helping women make informed and shared decisions about screening. She's taught us about all of this and more, so without further ado, let's get to it.
2: What did one mammary gland say to the other mammary gland? Oh, oh boy. no,
3: let not, oh, no. let not. Oh. <laughs> I gotta ask what?
2: Thanks for staying abreast with me. <laughs>
0: I think we can actually keep that in the show, Paul.
1: That could have been far worse. Yeah. All right. (laughs) I was prepared (laughs) again. You
2: you know, it'd be really funny if someone could take the Black Eyed uh, Peas song uh, "My Humps" and actually turn (laughs) it to like "My Lumps" and uh, talk about breast cancer screening with it.
3: Yeah, I feel like I've actually thought about that in my head.
2: (laughs) what is happening? I don't (laughs) like (laughs) it.
3: I'm not sure what that says about us. Yeah.
0: Claire, please put this somewhere in the show, maybe at the end. (laughs) Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. I know we got postponed a little bit, but I know this is going to be worth the wait. Uh, Before we get into talking about breast cancer screening and and breast lumps, can you tell the audience, give them a one-liner about yourself, and maybe throw in a hobby, something interesting you do outside the world of medicine?
4: Great. So I'm a physician scientist with a primary care practice, and I'm a health policy researcher where I study organization, delivery, and payment of healthcare for individuals with cancer or at risk for cancer. I'm married. I have two kids, ages 12 and 13, and I would say probably my most uh, favorite hobbies are travel and cooking.
3: What have you been doing for travel in the last few months?
4: So the COVID era has created some challenges. We've had to uh, switch plans on two international trips, but we did. I did just get back uh, from two weeks in a week in Maine and a week in Vermont. And it, in many ways, COVID provided a nice opportunity to do some more exploring in areas that are pretty nearby, and I clearly haven't spent enough time in. It was really great.
0: Like looking, seeking out the biggest ball of yarn in uh, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> road, roadside attractions, things like that.
1: That famous main attraction, the ball of twine. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, we spent, we spent almost a week in Acadia National Park, oh which is one of the parks I've never been to. I've been to about 30 of the U.S. national parks and oh, wow. somehow haven't been to the nearest one to me. And uh, it really was spectacular.
2: Yeah. My family has a cottage in Fly Point, Maine, near Blue Hills. So not too far from Acadia.
0: Great, and I should mention to the audience they may be hearing uh, Stewart's cat and Stuart, What was the cat's name again?
2: Pablo Picasso. All I right. can definitely hear him.
0: Yeah, we we could <laughs> probably get the cat out of the room, but let's just let's just record with oh, Pablo he's out of the tonight. Room, that's the problem. He, he <laughs> seems like a great cat. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to ask Nancy any questions in between the meowing of your cat?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, Nancy, what's the best advice that you could give to our up and coming young? especially female physicians in order to reach the level of expertise and uh, accomplishments that you've done?
4: You know, I think that um, probably the most important thing is to figure out what you love to do and find a way to do it and work hard and be committed. And, um, and I find with those things, good things tend to happen. Uh, You know, Nora did ask me to comment specifically on one piece of advice uh, that has been meaningful for me from women in medicine. And I'm going to date myself a little bit and refer back to a paper that was published when I was in my training uh, in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Molly Carnes. And she was writing about balancing work and family. And she she used this really wonderful analogy that I still remember. She was kind of talking about how to simplify her life and make things close together. And she gave this analogy of a street performer who is, uh, has 10 plates that he's spinning on little sticks. And she talked about how, you know, if he keeps those sticks close, you just give it a little tap and it keeps spinning. But when they they get too far away and you can't spin them, they sort of wobble and fall off and break. And, and whenever I'm thinking about Something new that I'm doing, or where I'm gonna live or where my kids' pediatrician should be, or where you know how i'm gonna co locate school and work and home. I really do think about this idea of getting all these plates spinning really close to me, and I feel like that's just been a really uh, nice image to have over the years. I can get you that paper if you want if you want link to it,
0: sure. I think there's someone that spins plates at Quincy Market if uh, at least there was like many years ago when I used to live in Boston. Uh, we we also I think it's like to, metaphor Matt. <laughs> 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 it was it Paul, <laughs> I I don't think you know what a metaphor is. Uh, <laughs> Nancy, something. how about a book recommendation?
4: Yeah, so, you know, I love to read um and in thinking about books that other physicians might enjoy, uh something I've read in the last 6 months or so was Evicted by the sociologist Matthew Desmond. And while this isn't specifically about healthcare, it provides a really compelling description of the challenges that so many of our patients uh, and so many Americans are facing in just being adequately housed. And I think that the more we think about the impact of social determinants on the health of our patient population, it's just, I think, a really wonderful insight. Um, uh, he, Matthew Desmond spent a year embedded in two different communities in Milwaukee, and uh, the stories he tells are just incredibly compelling.
0: Great recommendation, thank you. Nora, did you want to give a pick of the week before we get on with the with the show?
4: Sure,
3: I have one in mind. Um, this is actually another medical podcast. I'm not sure that y'all have heard about it. It's called Run the List. Um, it was started actually by one, a co-resident of mine, uh, one of my first uh, residents when I was an intern, He was a wonderful medical educator, one of the most compassionate guys um, I've worked with, Walker Red. Um, and the podcast has been uh, growing since then. It's kind of, it's shorter takes on a lot of different um, kind of key medical complaints and how to work them up, kind of uh, frame, f- uh, frameworks, uh, that are really good, um, and, and a little bit briefer than, than our conversation. So highly recommend.
0: Hey, is a career change part of your strategy for the future? Well, our sponsor provider solutions and development has a team of experts ready to guide you through today's physician job landscape with over 20 years of experience. They are committed to finding you the right team, the perfect setting and the work you are meant to do. PSD's in house recruiters are not focused on quotas and they do not work on commission. Whether this is your moment to shine, pivot directions, or discover something new, Provider Solutions and Development has access to hundreds of opportunities across the country. So reach out today at psdrecruit.com forward slash curbsiders. So with that, uh, unless Stuart or Paul have any really pressing picks of the week, we can get on with the case. Nora, do you want to do you want to do the honors?
3: Yeah, of course. So for our first part of the case, we've got Miss Brenda Cantwell. She's 46 um, and she has a history of hypertension, major depressive disorder and remission and obesity who presents to your office uh, in the outpatient setting with a right sided breast lump. She states it's not painful to the touch and that her husband actually noticed it a month ago. It hasn't dramatically changed in size since she noticed it um, and hasn't noticed any nipple discharge, any changes to the skin, um, no pain, otherwise really no symptoms um, and so so kind of starting with this case, um, I'm wondering what what things on that history um, are you looking for and what other questions are important to ask in gathering gathering more data on this person with a new breast lump.
4: Great. So you've already told me that it hasn't changed much, but it does seem to be new over the last month or so. It's non-tender. Uh, I would be curious if she's ever had lumps in her breast before, if it's associated with her periods or her menstrual cycle, um, if she's had any breast trauma, uh, if she has any history of... Um, cancers in her family, particularly breast cancer, but other cancers that might be associated with breast cancer, including ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer, colorectal cancer. Um, if she's had a recent pregnancy, obviously that would be relevant. And, um, and, you know, thinking a little bit about other risk factors for breast cancer. She is in her forties, a a point at which risk for breast cancer starts to increase in prevalence. And so, um, with a painless lump, obviously, you know, thinking about malignancy is, is a key thing.
0: So how do you think about the differential diagnosis for this? Like as a, if, if you're in the primary care clinic, you're seeing someone with a lump, how do you think about it does it differ based on the patient's age? Can you talk us through that?
4: Yeah, so you know the thing that we obviously are most concerned about is ruling out cancer. Uh you know, in these lumps cancer is actually a pretty uncommon diagnosis, probably 10% or fewer uh depending on someone's age, but it's the thing that's most important to find. And so uh, I'm I'm always thinking about that. Uh aside from that, you know, things like Breast cysts are very common. Fibroadenoma are, are very common. Uh, just just nodular fibrous breast uh, breasts can be something that can sometimes feel like a lump, although that tends to be a little bit more bilateral. There, you know, are for more acute things. Thinking about a, a breast abscess, uh, particularly if there's fever or redness or swelling. Um, and someone who's been recently breastfeeding uh, or, or recent pregnancy can have a galactocele. Um, trauma can be associated with fat necrosis. So someone gets hit in the breast with a softball or involved in a motor vehicle accident. And those are kind of the main things that we're thinking of. Um, obviously the risk of, of malignancy, as I mentioned, goes up as you, as you get older, you know, for women who are quite young, that is incredibly uncommon, although it's, you know, it's not zero. So it should always be on our differential, but, um, but as we're thinking about evaluating them, you know, this woman's 46, I, I certainly, she has a painless mass that is new, you know, I am going to make sure that it's not a malignancy.
2: So there's a lot of controversy that surrounds doing clinical breast examinations. And per this uh, patient's reported history, her husband, I assume was doing a, a clinical breast examination about a month ago and found the this, this lump. And, uh, what what's your take on on doing these on well just doing in, in general clinical breast examinations uh, as part of a, a routine tr- a screening?
4: Yeah, and so you know, I'll, I'll I'll sort of distinguish a couple of things. One is the breast self exam, and the other is the clinical breast exam, and also think about them both in the in the screening context and in the a diagnostic context. Obviously, this in this case. A clinical breast exam is highly indicated because she has a mass. So we're doing case finding. Uh, This would be a diagnostic clinical breast exam. But what do we know? Well, you know, first, let's just mention uh, breast self-exam. So for many, many years, we recommended that women learn how to examine their breasts systematically once a month. And um, that has actually been tested in two large randomized clinical trials, one in Russia, the other in China. And both trials found no no benefit of decreased breast cancer mortality in this population that's not being screened, and actually an increase in the number of uh, false positives and a cascade of diagnostic testing that didn't actually cause benefits. So so now it's generally felt that recommending breast self-exam is not something that we need to be doing. That said, you know, there still is a reasonable number of breast cancers that present clinically, and up to ten or fifteen percent of all breast cancers are not ever evident on mammography screening and So I think that we have to recognize that some patients are going to be finding masses on their own and and we should be attuned to that. I think then the next question comes to what about clinical breast exam and clinical breast exam. Uh, has not been shown in randomized clinical trials yet to lower breast cancer mortality, although there is a large study underway in India that we hope to to have reports of in the next year or two that hopefully will help us to answer this question. Um, For many, many years, this was recommended that at least once a year, women should have a clinical breast exam. In 2015, the American Cancer Society updated their breast cancer screening guidelines, and we'll talk about them a little bit later, but they actually explicitly recommended against routine clinical breast exam. The United States Preventive Services Task Force has instead said that the evidence is insufficient to recommend for or against it. And um, I know that this has led a lot of people not to do clinical breast exams. Um, The the American Cancer Society basically justified this decision by saying, you know, we're worried that it it will cause false positives and unnecessary biopsies, and there isn't enough evidence to support it. And they said, you know, it takes time, and we'd rather you spend that time focused on engaging patients and shared decision making about their uh, their screening decisions. But I will say, you know, you could interpret the mammography data. Um, some of the trials used clinical breast exam in the control group, and other trials didn't. And you could actually look at the data and find some potential indirect evidence of benefit of clinical breast exams. So I actually still do it once a year in women. And I use that time while I'm doing it to to, to often, you know, talk with them a little bit about mammography. Sometimes I'll also do it while I'm doing their review of systems or whatever. So I, I still think that, you know, we just can't disregard the fact that a lot of masses, a lot of cancers are found not by mammography screening.
1: We're becoming notorious for finding out that we do exams completely wrong. So I, I'm wondering if you could talk us through your approach to the clinical breast exam, since I've gotten probably some dubious advice uh, throughout the course of my medical training. So I'd love to hear how someone who actually does it well, does it?
4: Yeah, well, and you know, probably most of us don't do it well. And this was actually one of the other reasons the American Cancer Society said, let's not do it, because they felt like most people probably weren't doing it well enough. You know, uh, the the official instructions are that we should is that we should first inspect, um, often first with the woman sitting and then with her lying down and her arm over her, her, uh, her arm behind her head. And we first inspect, look at the skin, make sure we don't see any dimpling, retraction, nipple inversion, uh, redness, uh, skin changes. And then, um, in the most complete exam, we would actually examine sitting up, and then again lying down. I-, I will say, in all practicality, in most women, I just do it lying down, particularly for screening purposes. In this patient, I, I would try to do it um, both s- upright and lying down. And the key is to to be sure to so, so to you want to feel for axilla in the regional areas, so under the axilla, the supraclavicular area, the cervical nodes, and then. You want to cover basically the whole rectangle that includes the breast tissue, which extends into the axilla. And there are different ways you can do it. There's the radial approach where you kind of come out like the spokes of a bicycle wheel. There's the uh, circumferential approach where you start in the middle and you go in concentric circles around. And then there's what some people call the, the lawnmower approach where you just kind of go back and forth. And as you're going through the breast, you should be using the base of your fingertips, uh, not the sorry, not the tips, the uh, oh gosh, pads, the pads. Thank you, Nora. (laughs) Uh, And and you should be pressing both first lightly, then medium, and then deeper. And you go kind of systematically through the breast, feeling for irregularities. And what you're looking for is a discrete mass. You know, a lot of women have somewhat nodular breasts, but if it's generally nodular throughout, that's not typically concerning. That just is sort of irregular breast tissue, um, very common in younger women. Uh, But you're looking for actually a discrete mass that you can kind of feel around. And and then when you're feeling it, you want to know, is it fixed, which is more concerning for cancer, or is it mobile uh, and and spongy? Is it tender? Tender uh, nodules tend to be less likely to be cancer.
2: So I was trained by a uh... Breast cancer surgeon, and it, he he always told me that the way that he initially inspects is to have them lean forward, internally rotate, and then have them let the breast kind of hang hang in front to look for irregularity. Um, he's the only individual who who ever actually taught me how to inspect like that. Is, is that is that something that's taught in the in the literature or taught? I, I, it's it was just a, a unique way of inspecting for asymmetry.
4: Yeah, I've not actually. Been taught that, um, but it sounds like a great suggestion. And you know, certainly, I think this is part of the reason for the upright posture is to mm-hmm. really see that the breasts are hanging symmetrically. And I think that inverting of the shoulders could could actually really enhance that a lot. So I like that suggestion.
3: Yeah, Stuart, I actually was taught that as well. Also, only by a breast surgeon, though.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so yeah. it may be just part of part of their their exam.
2: Yeah. I, I was trying to find yeah. his name. I was yeah. trying to find his name. It was uh, His la- last name is Lister, oh. but I can't find him.
0: Well, let's get back to Miss Cantwell. So she's 46, and we talked a little bit about some of the historical things that we would look for, um, risk factors that might make us think more malignancy, and then the differential. We talked about how, how to do the exam. Um, so let's say we don't feel anything on exam. Um, she's saying she found this lump or I guess actually, Nora. Do we? You tell me. It doesn't say in our case here. Did were we able to feel it on our clinical breast exam or not?
3: Um, let's say we did feel it, and maybe we can quickly talk about how it would go if we didn't feel it.
4: Yeah, that sounds great. So you know, if we feel it, uh, we definitely need to do something about it. I think that's sort of you know, rule number one. And what we do about that is going to depend a little bit on her age. Um, If this is a young woman, particularly a woman under the age of 30, we typically start with a breast ultrasound. And the reason being that mammography is just not very sensitive in women who are young, who tend to have very, uh, very fibrous breasts and the imaging pictures just aren't that good. So we start with an ultrasound, we tell, the, we tell them exactly where we find the mass. I see a mass at you know at two o'clock on the right breast. And then the ultrasound tech can actually go in there and look at that ex- exact spot and say, this is it. I, I can see it. And they can also, also feel it and then see it again. And it really can be helpful. You really wanna know what do you see at that exact spot where this mass exists. And if, we, if they see the mass, then we usually let the radiologist determine if they think there would be a benefit of also getting a mammogram. Um, Typically we as primary care doctors don't order the initial mammogram, but the radiologist might think that there's something about the look where a mammogram might help them figure out uh, the next step, which is, is typically biopsy. If it's a cystic mass, then you can often, uh, they can just aspirate it and it will go away and then we're done. If it's, um, a solid mass or a complex mass, then it typically should needs to be biopsied and the radiologist will do a core needle biopsy. And then you have your answer. Um, If the, uh, if I think the, the more challenging question is what we do when that ultrasound is negative. So if the ultrasound is negative, but there's still a mass, either the patient's convinced that there's a mass or I'm convinced that there's a mass, you know, there's a couple things we can do. If the patient's young and otherwise uh, totally healthy You could have them go home for two months, come back in two months through two two menstrual cycles, and many of these will resolve on their own. And if it goes away, then you're done. If it doesn't go away or if they're not menstruating, then they should go to a surgeon for evaluation and consideration of a biopsy based on just the feel of it, even if you don't see it on ultrasound. Um, the, The process is pretty similar for women over the age of 40, uh, over the age of 30 or 30 and older. But in that case, you typically order the diagnostic mammogram as well as the ultrasound. And they get both studies because one may miss something that the other one might capture. And the, the performance characteristics of the mammography at, in women over the age of 30 is just better. And so, uh, it seems reasonable to do that.
3: Is there a case in which you would get just the mammogram as opposed to both? In- I think
4: so women over 30? Yeah, I don't think so. I think um, because, you know, because 10 to 15% of breast cancers are not visualized on a mammogram, that the ultrasound can really help complement the mammogram. And this is, again, an ultrasound done for case finding. You know, we know that ultrasounds alone are not good screening tests for breast cancer because there's huge numbers of false positives. But if you're looking in a specific area, then the ultrasound can be very helpful. And it also then, you know, can help you tell, is this a fluid-filled cyst or is this actually a solid mass.
2: Is there any role for point of care ultrasound as an adjunct to the uh, clinical breast examination or has it been looked at?
4: So that's a great question. Um, I'm not aware of it being looked at or used in the primary care setting. Uh, but I will say that in our breast center at the Brigham, the docs and the nurse practitioners in that clinic will often, particularly for women when we're worried about a breast abscess, they do do point of care ultrasounds and that can help guide management. Um, particularly again for women where we're worried about breast abscesses.
0: I haven't seen that. I've been to a couple courses, Stuart. I haven't, th- this doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I, that hasn't been one of the uses that they're advocating for internists, like one of the, maybe because there's a lot of nuances to it, but. Yeah. Well,
2: not only that, but it, it'd be hard to get expertise with with our patient population when we're really, for the most part, screening, not diagnosing.
0: Well, how should we wrap up this first case here? I think we have a pretty good idea now what to do for, you know, what's what should be on a differential, what, what kind of questions to ask, and and what would be the workup for a woman that's presenting with a uh, breast mass. Nora, is there any other parts to this case? Is is there a happy ending for Miss Cantwell?
3: Well, I think kind of one interesting teaching point to ask about might be just this follow-up piece, um, just about how mammograms are actually scored and what what those squaring numbers actually mean. So, just kind of briefly, if you could describe, let's say she got uh, she got a diagnostic mammogram that was that had a BI-RADS three reading. What what does that mean, and what do we do about it?
4: Yeah. So the BI-RADS is a basic uh, is basically just a um, way of of standardizing reporting of mammography uh, imaging. And the radiologists score everything along the BiRad scale, uh, starting with BiRad zero, which means that they have insufficient data to to actually characterize what they're seeing, and they need additional imaging. So that just means it's incomplete. Patients need to come back for additional imaging. There's BiRads one, which is basically completely normal. BiRads two, which is um, some. Changes, but completely benign. Uh, and studies have shown that the risk of cancer in BIRADS 1 or BIRADS 2 is essentially zero. BIRADS 3 is where there are some changes that are likely benign, but the radiologist isn't 100% sure about it. And so they recommend close follow up at six months. Um, up to 2% of BIRADS 3, uh, rated mammograms could be cancer. So it's still very unlikely to be cancer, but it's really one of these things where we just want to watch it much more closely. Birads 4 is a suspicious lesion and a Birads 5 is highly suspicious and both Birads 4 and 5 lead to biopsy. So these are the solid, the solid or complex masses that are very concerning. And um, the next step is a needle biopsy for all of those.
1: So I was going to say there's, there's a neurologist named uh, Martin Samuel who talks about if, if a patient comes to your office with a headache, their number one concern is they have a brain tumor. And I feel like if a, if a patient's coming to you with a breast mass, even if they're not expressing that concern, their number one concern is that this represents malignancy. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind just talking us through um, some of the epidemiology of, of breast cancer, sort of how common is it and sort of where is there a population cut off where we should be more concerned about it um, and, and where does that fall?
4: Yeah, so you know, every women are women are highly concerned about breast cancer. Breast cancer is the most common cancer diagnosed among women. Um, you know, we commonly hear the statistic one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer, or twelve point five percent. That's a lifetime statistic. So one in eight in your lifetime, if you live to age eighty five, uh, but. And and breast cancer, you know, the the strongest risk factor is age. So breast cancer is really a disease of aging. It's much more common in older women than younger women. That said, women in their late 20s and 30s can still get breast cancer and often when they do, they can have very aggressive types of cancer. So it's it's something we never want to completely disregard. And um, and so, you know, I think reminding people of the likelihood, particularly in these young women, the likelihood that a breast mass is cancer is ex- incredibly low, um, but not zero. You know, we need to follow these things through until we have a comfortable resolution. And again, if we if, if they still feel a mass or we still feel a mass and the ultrasound is negative, they go to the surgeon because you just don't want to miss a cancer diagnosis. But uh, but we can be very reassuring in those populations because the risk is so low Whereas in older women, we're much more worried and um, and much more likely to find a cancer. That said, you know women are very worried about the likelihood of being diagnosed with breast cancer, but we do know that uh, breast cancer is highly treatable, and the vast majority of people who are diagnosed with breast cancer are cured of it. And. Um, the risk of dying of breast cancer is actually quite low. It's about one in 36 women or less than 3% of women will die of breast cancer. And th- I think that's particularly compelling when we compare that with the risk of dying of lung cancer, which is one in 20 women, um, or the-, the risk of dying of heart disease, which is one in three. And you know, I think women are often much more worried about their risk of dying of breast cancer. And I often remind them of the things that they can do to lower their risk of dying of these other cancers uh, of, you know, lung cancer or, you know, even heart disease. And it's always a good chance to even talk about what things women can do to lower their risk of all of these things. So, you know, exercising regularly, avoiding obesity, um, avoiding excess alcohol, which is associated with breast cancer are things that, uh, that we can be reminding them whenever we're talking with them about their fear of breast cancer.
0: And when the when women get the BIRADS diagnosis that's like a, a three and and they need further im or a zero and they need further imaging or follow up, typically the in my experience the, the breast imaging center handles that follow up as a primary you have to be a little bit aware just to prompt your patient, Hey, did you get this followed up? But typically it's not us suggesting when the follow up is, right?
4: That's right. They, um, that is typically recommended by the mammography centers. The mammography centers are, are, uh, regulated through the FDA and there are very strict standards that they have to call, that they have to follow as far as communicating with patients. Um, so by and large, they do take care of those things, including, you know, when women need biopsies, they are the ones that schedule the biopsy, uh, because these are all done in radiology. Now the core needle biopsies, um, that said, I, you know, when, when a woman has a normal mammogram, I don't bother to reach out to them because they get the letter from the mammography facility. But when a woman has a BiReds 0 or a BiReds 3, uh, and certainly a 4 and 5, but even with a BiReds 3, I will typically reach out to them, uh, and say, you know, by the way, I saw your mammogram report. I know they've already reached out to you, but you need extra images or don't forget, you know, you're going to need to come in in six months. And because there, there are unfortunately lots of people that fall through the cracks who never get back and, the radiology facility should loop back to us and say, "Oh, by the way, I can't reach this woman. Can you help?" But um, I feel like you know the belt and suspenders approach can be helpful there.
0: I like it. One one last thing before we leave this first case with Miss Cantwell: the if she had just come with no lump but breast pain, and she would, her main complaint was, "I'm just having pain in the in maybe one breast or both in or both breasts," as Paul was saying when patients tell me that complaint, I get the sense they are worried that's a sign of a cancer. So how do you respond to that? Like breast pain as a complaint is, is cancer on your differential?
4: Yeah. You know, cancer is rarely, um, associated with pain or the, the answer when someone's only complaint is pain. I will certainly take a thorough history, do a, do a very thorough clinical breast exam. Um, if I don't feel any kind of masses, uh, I won't do anything else other than to make sure that they are up to date with any appropriate screening and then talk with them about some of the other things that can cause breast pain like menopause or, uh, dietary, uh, dietary issues. And then, you know, think through, is there anything that they can do? Uh, you know, often even just a better fitting bra can be really helpful, uh, to, to attenuate these symptoms.
0: Great. Nora, what's, what's up next here?
4: Well,
3: We've got another case with another friendly face, uh, Miss Mammy Graham, Miss Graham, <laughs> uh, who is 46 as well. She is just establishing care with you in your outpatient clinic. Um, she's never had any sort of breast complaint, doesn't have any currently, and she's never had a mammogram. And so this gets a little bit into uh, the Uh, breast evaluation without a breast complaint. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about what the current guidelines recommend in terms of uh, mammogram?
4: Yeah. And, And, you know, I think maybe even before I mention that, I'll just say one briefly, some comments about screening in general. So what is the purpose of screening? When we're screening, we are trying to find disease, in this case, cancer or breast cancer early before it would cause symptoms but also at a time where we can intervene and make a difference and lower mortality, lower the likelihood that that cancer would cause them to die. Um, we also want to make sure that any screening test has a good benefit, this mortality reduction, but with very few false positives and false negatives and other harms like Overdiagnosis, which we'll talk about later, which are problems that screening can do where we find disease that we don't need to find. So, um, and, and maybe I'll just even define it now. Overdiagnosis, which I think we all now recognize is the chief harm of many screening tests, is when we find a cancer or a fine disease that we never would have found in the absence of screening. And this is something that's hard for people to get their head around that, you know, there could be a cancer in your body that is never going to progress, might even regress. Or if it does progress, it progresses so slowly that you're never gonna feel the lump or have symptoms from it. And you will live the rest of your life and die of another cause and you'll never have known you had it. But if we do the mammogram and we find it, we don't know if that's a cancer that wasn't going to cause problems or not. So we treat it like we treat all cancers. And in that case, we would be subjecting this patient to the harms of treatment when they're not actually realizing the benefits. And so, um, as, as we learn more and more about, uh, cancer screening, breast cancer screening, and some other cancer screenings, I think we're much more aware that this is a, a problem that we need to be cognizant of. So, um, so looping back to, you know, what's going on with the guidelines. Well, prior to 2009, we had a lot of consistency in national guidelines, at least in the United States, where the guidelines generally said all women age 40 and over should be screened every year with a mammogram. And That changed notably in 2009 when the US Preventive Services Task Force updated their recommendations and said that we should start routine screening for women age 50, continue screening every other year or biennially until they're 74, and then they said, or or 75, and then they said age 75 and over, we have insufficient evidence to recommend for or against mammography screening. And this recommendation caused a huge uproar because of this question of what's, what about women in their 40s in particular? And, you know, who are you to say that the benefits are being outweighed by the harms? Um, At that time, the USPSTF emphasized the risks of false positives where you have to come back for additional imaging and the risk of unnecessary biopsies where you have a biopsy that doesn't lead to a diagnosis of cancer. And and the response was you know these are not that big of a deal you know yes they might cause anxiety and um and mood changes and there's some inconvenience of biopsies and maybe some pain and bleeding but by and large they're not that big of a deal and you know you're talking about maybe a life saved how how who are you to say what these benefits and harms are um and and so i think that that since then uh a few things have happened. Number one, in 2015, the American Cancer Society, who had always just said, let's screen everybody frequently and, you know, relatively early, they revamped their guideline policies, uh, the development procedures, and they uh, changed from recommending mammograms every year starting at age 40 to recommending mammograms starting at age 45. They said do them yearly until a woman's 55 and then do them every other year until the woman has a life expectancy of 10 years or less. And they said women age 40 to 44 should have the option to undergo annual mammograms, um, but recognize that the benefit to harm ratio in these younger women is less than it is for older women. In 2016, the USPSTF reinforced their same recommendations from 2009. So again, recommending mammograms Uh, every other year starting at age 50 with individualized decisions before age 50. In the US, still, the American Radiology Society does recommend mammograms every year starting at age 40. So there is still some uh, disagreement among organizations here. But uh, in the rest of the world, we, we have been screening much more aggressively in comparison. So in most of Europe and Australia, recommendations have typically been Every two years or every three years, starting at uh, at age fifty and usually going to age seventy or so, um, and and there's you know there's even some a couple of years ago uh, the Swiss medical board uh, made created a lot of attention when they published an article saying you know we've reviewed the mammography benefits and harms and we think as far as screening programs go we could use our scarce medical resources much more effectively in other things. And they actually decided they were not going to start any new mammogram screening programs and maybe even phase out their existing programs. So I think that this is sort of one of these things, these guideline bodies are sort of looking at the big picture population-based areas saying, how do we think we can maximize the health of our population using scarce resources and how does it make sense? And that has sort of led to this pulling back. Um, you know, but we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, my approach and what I think we should be doing uh, for women in their 40s and 50s a little bit.
2: Yeah, You know, some of our listeners um, may be thinking, because there's a few studies that have come out that look at the impact of um, frequency of mammography and look at survival and really don't show a significant improvement based off of the increased frequency of mammography. And the largest study I can recall was I believe in the annals it looked at 16 million uh Americans uh over a from 1990 to about 2006 time frame. Um and then when we look at the cancer survival, the 10-year cancer survival for breast cancer from about 1975 to 2010, it has improved by about 28 to th- 25 to 30% give or take. One of the uh, the authors of an article that was published in uh, the Journal of Cancer Policy in 2015 stated that this improvement in mortality was unlikely to be the result of advances in prevention or screening, but because of the improvement in actual in, in the treatment of the cancer itself. How would you respond to someone who says that, well, maybe mammography itself I- is not for my patients or the patients who say it's not for me?
4: Well, so it's, those are all really great points. And um you know the data that we have on the benefits of mammography screening are limited so there have been eight or nine depending on how you count them large randomized clinical trials of mammography screening however they were conducted in the 1960s 70s 80s and 90s and so there is a lot that we don't know and there's sort of two camps on this there's one group of people that says you know what the mammography technology is so much better now that certainly the benefits of mammography screening would be better because we can just see the cancers so much more, so much better with our digital technology. There's another side of the argument though, that says, listen, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, we didn't have great treatments for breast cancer. Treatment for breast cancer is so much better now that maybe there would be less of a benefit of mammography screening. And unfortunately I'm, I'm not optimistic that we're going to have a great answer to that question. Um, and and we're sort of stuck with the data that we have, but I, I think that, uh, that the benefits are smaller than most people recognize. And even when we think about what is the benefit. So if you do the meta-analyses of these randomized clinical trials, it suggests that the overall benefit of mammography screening is a 21% reduction in the likelihood of dying of breast cancer. That's also, that's not overall mortality. It's a breast cancer mortality endpoint. And that, that, um, and there's a couple things I'll say about that. So first of all, the 21% reduction in the likelihood of of dying of breast cancer is great. It's certainly better than a zero reduct you know a 0% reduction, but what it also means is that of people who have cancers with the potential to be de- that are the, that are potentially deadly, you know, still 79% of those women with these very aggressive cancers will die even if they have a mammogram, right? So we're we're decreasing a minority. The the other thing that is really important is that this benefit varies by age. So the risk reduction for women in their 40s is about 8%. The risk reduction for women in their 50s is about 14%, and it's about 33% for women in their 60s. So this is when when we get back to what is the balance of the benefit and harms for women in their 40s, and part of the reason that the USPSTF recommended against it. In fact, in the most recent meta-analysis, which was updated with the Canadian trial data that was a null study for the benefit of mammography screening compared with clinical breast exam alone, the, um, there was no benefit. So in the most recent meta-analysis, this 8% risk reduction is not even statistically significant. I think it probably is real, but I also think it's probably very small. And so when we think about you know these are these percentage reductions are relative risk reductions. If we think about absolute risk reductions, I like to talk to my patients and sort of frame this in a population of 10,000 women that I screen every year for 10 years. And over that 10-year period, for women in their 40s, we're likely to save about three deaths from breast cancer. For women in their 50s, it's about 10, and for women in their 60s, it's about 43. So So even for women in their 50s and 60s, you know, 10 out of 10,000, 43 out of 10,000, those numbers are still relatively small. And, um, and they're certainly very, very small for women in their 40s. And I think that this is part of the reason that we should be, we should be going away from routine reflexive. You're 50 years old. You need a mammogram to you're over the age of 40. You need shared decision making about whether regular mammography screening is right for you and we'll come back to talk a little bit more about how that conversation could go and what what other resources are available to help us with that conversation.
0: So 3 3 in 10,000 for women in their 40s. I mean the it's like 99.99 you know percent at least are not not benefiting from that. And I guess when you present it that way And these are average risk women we're talking about, right? Because we do need to talk about how we're gonna, like, so for Miss Miss Cantwell, uh, or sorry, Miss Miss Graham. I'm sorry, I forgot we moved on. We're on Miss Mamie Graham now. Let's remember. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, for
3: Miss, She's a little younger than her her age might imply (laughs) it.
0: Yes, uh, for this for this 46 year old, uh, what what do we have to make sure that what do we do to make sure she's average risk?
4: Right. So um, so. You know, it's very important to be thinking about average risk versus high risk. And particularly when we think about high risk, we really want to be thinking about women who might have a genetic predisposition for cancer because those women belong in a completely separate category and have, you know, earlier, we start screening them earlier and we screen them differently, typically with both mammogram and breast MRI uh, because of their very high risk of cancer. And there is some evidence to support that uh, more aggressive strategy um for for younger women we think about what are their risk factors uh such as age um again uh one of the strongest risk factors family history um hormonal risk factors like early onset of menarche late menopause late onset of childbearing or nulliparity um we also think about Obesity for postmenopausal women, we think about alcohol use, uh, we think about prior exposures like hormone replacement therapy, radiation to the breast, um, are, are all key important things. And then, and then, you know, for women that don't have a lot of red flags, like I had radiation for, uh, lymphoma when I was younger, or I have a strong family history, then we typically turn to a risk prediction tool, um, The most common one out there is the breast cancer risk tool, which is on the NCI's website. It's based on a model called the Gale model uh, that takes a lot of these risk factors, both age, um, exposures, prior breast biopsy was something I forgot to mention, and and then gives you an estimated risk of breast cancer. It's worth noting that these models perform very well for populations of patients. They, They perform a little less well for an individual, predicting an actual individual's risk of developing cancer in the next five years, but they're currently the best thing we have. And so you can plug a patient's characteristics into the risk tool and it will give you a number that says, you know, this 40, some 40 year old woman has a 0.7% risk of breast cancer in the next five years. And then it will also give you the risk of an average 40 year old woman, which is also 0.7%. And that gives you a sense that this woman's risk is average risk. Um, There are, uh, There are, um, if a woman's risk is substantially greater than average, then that might be someone where you want to talk about earlier or more regular screening. In someone that has a particularly low risk, then again, you might be a little bit less worried. And, And it is important to let them know that this isn't a perfect risk assessment, but that it does help them feel comfortable that you are not at particularly elevated risk of developing breast cancer. You're like the average woman, and so we can talk about breast cancer in that con- breast cancer screening in that context.
0: I was looking at the one tool, the um BCSC. Um, it was requiring that you know the patient's breast density. So wouldn't that require that they've already had a mammogram to know that?
4: Yes. And so um so let's talk a little bit about breast density. So breast density is a uh, mammographic appearance description. So you you don't know someone's breast density until you've seen a mammogram, and basically every mammogram is graded on a four-level scale from um, almost entirely fatty, which is the least dense, uh, to scattered fibroglandular tissues, uh, which is the second category. The third category is heterogeneously dense, and then the fourth category is extremely dense. And we know that women with dense breasts have a an elevated risk of breast cancer and the other thing that's important to know about women with des- dense breasts is that uh, there can be a masking effect where the breast density can obscure cancers and so cancers can be missed and it's a real challenge to try to figure out how to how to deal with uh, breast density in in our current population there uh, has been large advocacy, um, in recent years, um, started initially by a a PhD scientist named Nancy Capella, who was diagnosed with a stage three, three B breast cancer just a couple of months after having had a normal mammogram. And she went to the doctor and said, how, how could I have had this normal mammogram? And the doctor said, well, you have dense breasts. And she's like, well, I didn't know that. And so she started an advocacy organization that has successfully, uh, led to, uh, breast density legislation in most states. And then most recently national legislation and the FDA is now working on guidelines to implement a notification about breast density. And so these states now, and now nationally, there are laws that say we need to notify women about their breast density. The big challenge is, is that we don't actually yet have good studies to say, how should we do this notification? What kind of language should we use? Do women even understand what it means? And we also don't know what to do about it. Uh, What does it mean? Some of these notifications uh, laws even require language such as talk to your doctor about whether additional imaging would be useful, but we don't yet know that the additional imaging is useful in preventing deaths from breast cancer. And we we know that it could be associated with overdiagnosis. So it is really, really difficult to know what to do in this situation. Um, You know, there is some evidence that... Uh, that doing digital uh, tomosynthesis or three uh, d mammography might be a little bit better for women who have dense breasts. Um, you might also want to screen these women more often because the absolute benefit will be greater if your risk is higher, and these women do have a slightly higher risk. But we're still it's still a little puzzling what to do about whether these women should undergo ultrasounds or MRIs, which are associated with more breast cancers. Identified, but also associated with a lot more false positives and possibly overdiagnosis. But back to the BCSC calculator, if you do know the breast density, that's another calculator that can be very helpful. I have done an exercise where, um, because one question that came to me once was, well, should I get a baseline mammogram? So I kind of have a sense of the, the baseline breast density. But in my, in my experience in, in plugging numbers into the calculator, in a relatively low risk woman there's not a level at which a high breast density is going to c- create a high enough risk that would make me want to change my my recommendations and similarly in someone who's very high risk even if they have low breast density i'm not going to change my recommendations so i don't find i, I don't find that calculator to necessarily be better but it can be useful if you have breast density, or if someone's really worried about their breast density, to you know help them to understand that I'm factoring in your breast density, and you still are not at elevated risk of cancer.
0: That that reminds me of the uh, ASCVD risk calculator, where like if they're young enough and they're a woman, like no ma- almost no matter what numbers yep. you put in, like their risk
1: <laughs> their risk is not going to go up. Systolic like blood pressure, two twenty doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay. So that's... You,
1: you mentioned a couple of, of um, imaging modalities, which I always find a little bit confusing, and especially sort of patient selection for those. So you mentioned TOMO, um, which I, I say like I know what it is, but I might not. <laughs> and then also mammography. And then I will often sometimes, I often sometimes, very well done, Dr. Williams, but I will sometimes have patients ask for breast MRIs because mammograms are so notoriously uncomfortable. So I'm, I'm wondering if you just wouldn't mind sort of talking us through the different imaging modalities that are available and how you do patient selection for, for each of them.
4: Yeah. So, so, you know, we'll start with just the standard 2D mammogram, which is now typically digital mammography. Um, that is kind of the, the generally available everywhere and, um, and what we think is, you know, the minimum, uh, uh, and, and the most standard thing. And then the question is, when would you use tomosynthesis or 3D mammograms? So 3D mammograms have the advantage of giving a little bit clearer of a picture. So it, it creates, um, it typically takes extra images and then creates this 3d picture that allows you to get behind certain areas that might obscure a mass. And this, this is really interesting. So there is some evidence that you can pick up uh, maybe one to three additional cancers per 1000 women with 3d mammograms, uh, or tomosynthesis. Um, and, the question of the the increase in false positives or re- recalls uh, where women have to come back for additional imaging is is still a little bit um uncertain but becoming increasingly certain so the initial studies suggested that it led to increases in recalls and now what it seems to be is that in Europe it tends to lead to increases in recalls where recall rates at baseline are pretty low in the US in our litigious society where radiologists have traditionally been more conservative, our recall rates have historically been pretty high. And now there is pretty consistent data that suggests that tomosynthesis is associated with lower recall rates. Um, But it takes longer for the radiologists to read them. So there is a staffing issue there. And it also is typically more radiation, maybe double the radiation of a 2D mammogram. still still relatively low and below the, the limits it's felt to be unsafe, but it is a little bit more radiation, although newer technologies are, are moving towards, um, allowing the recreation of these images without the extra, without the extra radiation exposure. So I think we'll, we'll be there soon. Um, and some institutions have just adopted tomosynthesis across the board. So at the Brigham where Nora and I practice, if you go for a mammogram, you get tomosynthesis. Um, that is less the case in smaller centers, um, but I think we 're probably moving to there in the u s uh, is my guess. so what about MRI so MRI is a, a little bit more complicated so MRIs also find more cancers per uh, per one thousand women, but in this case, there tends to be a substantial increase in false positives and And the increase is such that in low to average risk women, the benefits does not seem to outweigh the downsides. But in high risk women, like women who have BRCA one and two mutations, uh, the benefits may be there. So we do we do recommend MRI in those populations. One of the other challenges with breast MRI is that these images are done with gadolinium enhancement, and there you know is increasing evidence of gadolinium deposits in the brain after four or five MRIs. And so I'm still cautious until we know more about what that means. I'm I'm a little reluctant to be pushing breast MRI. Um, that is terrifying.
1: I just, for the listeners at home, because um, we're on a video call, the way that Matt's eyes widened and then he immediately started taking notes when he heard that was just- Who knew they were with gadolinium, Paul? <laughs> oh, did
0: you know that? No, I had no idea. I had no idea. Well, do, what do you need gadolinium for? Come on, radiology. <laughs>
4: Makes to um, to do it without contrast, but the current the current ones use contrast. I'm shocked. Yeah.
0: What, what about this strategy of breast of mammography plus ultrasound for women with either dense breasts or or just a higher risk women instead of getting like the MRI?
4: Yeah, and so this in this case, it's what we're talking about is not the ultrasounds that we do to look for a breast mass uh, in a woman with a breast mass, but it's what's called whole breast ultrasound, where you need to actually image the entirety of both breasts. And that tends to be time intensive, although there are automated whole breast ultrasound machines that are trying to um, improve on that technique. And again, we we find a small number of increased breast cancers with ultrasound, whole breast ultrasound, but with a large number of increases in false positives and unnecessary biopsies and probably overdiagnosis. So this is where we just, we don't have any long-term data to say that this is beneficial and it clearly leads to downstream consequences of additional, additional imaging, additional biopsies. Um, and so it's really tough. You know, I think... For some women who are just really terrified about the risk of breast cancer, and um, and you know, you try to explain to them what the downsides are, and they understand that, and they say, "I still would rather would rather know for sure." Then, you know, it may be appropriate, but um, but not without lots of lots of work to help them understand that this is not this is not a tried and true and tested screening test. This is an adjunct test that may or may not be of benefit in the long run. What
3: will and won't insurance cover when it comes to all of these?
4: So insurance, um, is covering mammography for sure. Um, and, and this is also very interesting. So uh, this was one of the reasons that the USPSTF recommendations were so controversial because the affordable care act, uh, which expanded health insurance coverage, one of the other requirements was that it cover at no cost sharing any screening test considered at least a category, you know, that that was recommended by the USPSTF. And so people got worried that because the USPSTF was no longer recommending mammogram routinely for women in their 40s, that insurance companies might not cover it. Insurance companies have not gone there. It is covered with no cost sharing, really, for anyone over the age of 40, and then certainly for diagnostic purposes for, for anyone that it's ordered. Um, the, uh, the coverage of other tests varies by insurance. Um, what has historically happened in in institutions like ours that have expanded the use of tomosynthesis is that... The radiation facility will put in the bill for tomosynthesis, and if it's covered, great. And if it's not, then they just take that bill back and submit a bill for a traditional mammogram, and that's always covered. Uh, So patients have not typically had to pay out of pocket for tomosynthesis. Um, Breast ultrasound whole breast ultrasound purely for screening is often not covered. And, you know, I, for the, for the infrequent patients who really insist on it, although, you know, I think in some populations it's done much more often, uh, it may or may not be covered. And we encourage them to, to ask their insurance company. Um, similarly breast MRI for high risk patients, it's almost always covered for low risk patients. They probably should call and check.
3: So, bringing it back to our our patient, Miss Graham, who's 46, and for these patients who are kind of between 40 and 49 without any breast complaints, how would you actually go about counseling her? Could you give us some of the language you use and the data to kind of uh, to explain to her the risks and benefits.
4: Yeah, so, you know, I'm a I'm a big proponent of shared decision-making for screening decisions at all ages, but particularly for these women in their 40s, where I think that, you know, we, over the decades, we've led people to believe that the benefits of mammography are greater than they are. And, um, and so what I will start off with is I'll say, uh, you know, you're in your 40s. Um, current guidelines uh, often recommend starting routine mammograms for women in their fifties and then individualizing decisions for women in their forties. And I will say, you know, it's important to know that mammograms are not perfect tests. You know, we used to think we, we, we used to, we used to message that everybody just needed their mammogram and made it, made it seem that that's all you needed to do prevent, to prevent the likelihood of a bad outcome from breast cancer. But that we now realize was misleading. And, and so I say, you know, mammograms, are the best tests we have right now, but they're still limited. And so then I'll walk through what are the benefits. So the benefits of mammography is that there is a small, particularly for women in their 40s, a very small decrease in the risk of dying of breast cancer. And I'll walk through the numbers. I'll say, you know, if we screened 10,000 women in their 40s for 10 years, we would probably save the life for about three of them. Many women are still going to be diagnosed with breast cancer, and the vast majority of them will do well whether or not they had the mammogram. And then I'll say, you know, there also are harms to mammograms. And I walk through the harms. I start off usually with false positives and unnecessary biopsies. False positives, when you get called back for additional images, are incredibly common. That same 10,000 women that we screen every year for 10 years, over 6,000 of them will have at least one false positive, at least one callback. So I tell people, it's not that, it may not be that big of a deal, but just sort of expect it to happen. And when it does, don't say, oh no, I might have cancer. Say, My doctor told me this was just part of the test, is sometimes you have to have two tests. Um, You know, the risk of unnecessary biopsies when you have a biopsy that doesn't lead to a cancer diagnosis, about 7 to 9% of women, um, and of our 10,000 women, it's about 700 to 900 of them. And then there's this risk of overdiagnosis where we find a cancer that we never needed to know about because it would have regressed or not progressed. And that is, of those 10,000 women, it's about... uh, it's about 28 that are overdiagnosed, and so then I say, you know, um, I go through their risk, and uh, and if their average risk, these are the same numbers I use. Sorry, I should have said that first. I would I would always start with their risk, and then and then it's you know the next step is eliciting their values and preferences. How does this feel to you? How do you feel about the you know being potentially overtested or overtreated versus how do you feel about getting breast cancer because you know some women will be unlucky and will get breast cancer how will you feel about it if you didn't have a mammogram even if the likelihood that that mammogram would have made a difference is incredibly small and i have some women who say oh yeah i don't like all this excess testing i'm going to wait till i'm 50 or you know i definitely don't want to start now and i have other women who say i could never live with myself if i got diagnosed with breast cancer and hadn't had a mammogram and so To me, that is the answer. You know, that, that second woman, I say, well, let's start mammograms. And I'll often do them every year in those, in those women, uh, because I just think that this is important. Um, so I, and I, and I think that there are increasing, so, so the challenge here is how does the average primary care doctor do this, right? It's easy for me to do this because these numbers are in my head because I think about this a lot we can't expect the average primary care doctor to keep all these numbers in their head. And so what we really need are more and better decision tools where the doctor can say, go home and walk through this decision tool. Here it is online, or let me push it out to you on your electronic record patient portal. And I, I did write a, um, a brief clinical insight for JAMA about a year ago where I included um, some links to some tools that are out there and I can give those to you all to post as well. Because I think, and I actually have a printed copy of this in my office before I was doing everything in telemedicine, where I would hand it to the patient and say, you know, we've had this conversation. If you want to learn more, here are some resources. And they're organized by women in their forties or women age 50. And I just think that we need to um, rely on other people besides just the PCP to help women understand these benefits and harms and to really think about what does this mean to me? And I think that this even goes to women in their fifties, right? Like I think that as I mentioned before, our our quality measures should not say what proportion of women age 50 to 70 had a mammogram in the last two years. They should say what proportion of women over the age of 40 had a shared decision discussion about whether or not to have a mammogram. And I think there are a lot of women, even in their 50s, where they might say, you know what, I I get that there's a benefit enough for the guidelines to recommend it, but I think 10 out of 10,000 is still pretty small and I don't want to have it. And I think that can be perfectly appropriate as long as they understand the benefits and harms.
1: So you're saying that having my EHR just scream mammogram at me as soon as the patient turns 50 (laughs) is maybe not the best approach is what I'm hearing.
4: Right. And, And I actually think that, you know, these guidelines have been interpreted to where, where many people are not having discussions for women in their forties, which I think is also a, a mistake. And right. interestingly, there was a, there was a first person narrative in Stat News, which is a local, um, medical news journal, I guess, uh, that, um, where a woman said, who had been diagnosed with breast cancer, wrote this narrative and she said, I, I was 43. I asked my doctor if I should have a mammogram. And my, my doctor said, if you don't want a mammogram, you don't need a mammogram. And then she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she blames her doctor for, for her diagnosis. And and you know she was clearly not making an informed decision about whether or not she should have a mammogram. And, and I think she should have been. I think that the doctor should have sat down and helped her understand the limited benefits of the mammogram. And then helped her engage in that decision about whether she should have a mammogram or not.
0: I think the I've seen some of these tools. Usually they visually do it, where they show maybe it'll show like a bunch of uh, fig like figures and they're different colors, and they say like the green are the one who benefited, the yellow are the one who had harm, you know, whatever. And then and they kind of visually show what what we're saying, and maybe maybe some of these resources you're going to share with us do that, but I think. Those kind of things just even like forget making it easier for the patients. It also makes it easier for the physicians who aren't like st- statistics experts to understand this and to explain it to people. It's like the blind leading the blind sometimes, Paul, with all these uh these numbers.
1: No, I think anyone who knows our shows knows that we're an expert in statistics. But I mean for <laughs> other doctors, yeah. No, I guess that this might be a problem.
0: Yeah. Uh thank goodness for Rahul. Uh we, <laughs> if he's listening. Well, let's, uh, I think we should move on to our final case. So we've, we, uh, Miss Graham, I think decided she'll wait till she's 50. She was average risk and she didn't, uh, she wanted to, to avoid extra extra testing. So Nora, what's the last case to bring it home?
3: Uh, So we have Miss Cantwell's mother here, uh, Miss Britta Lumpworth. She's 75 and also new to your care. Sorry, guys. I went a little names, overboard is... with these names.
2: <laughs> that, that's that's too on. the uh, <laughs> Real
3: real deep touch. It's subtle. That's too I on think. nose, even for so me. So subtle. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, she has not gotten a mammogram ever. Uh, she has no complaints. Is on a baby aspirin and amlodipine and hasn't been to a doctor in 30 years, um, should she be getting a screening mammogram if she, if she's willing for some reason?
4: Yeah. So it's a great question. And, and I think that this, this question of when we should stop doing mammograms is a really good one. Um, we don't have tons of guidance on this because there have been no randomized clinical trials conducted in women age 75 and older. All of our data come from observational studies. We know that older women have lower risk of false positives and unnecessary biopsies, probably because they have less dense breasts. Um, but they also have higher risk of overdiagnosis because they have more competing illness. And so, um, you know, our best estimates of the benefits and the harms are that uh, of the 10,000 women in their 70s who get mammograms is that we would probably save about 20 lives. So better than women in their 40s and 50s, not as good as women in their 60s. Um, So the the, the more recent trend is is based on some modeling studies that suggest that when women don't live at least 10 years, the likelihood of actually benefiting from the early diagnosis and treatment is relatively small. So current recommendations uh, are leading towards saying, you know, let's start phasing out mammography screening when life expectancy is less than 10 years, certainly if it's less than five years. And so in this case, what I would do is I would think about what's this woman's life expectancy? And we can either use life tables. I actually have a picture of life tables for men and women in the US that I have stuck on my wall in my office, and I'll pull it down and and look at it with the patient. Um, And and in in a 75-year-old woman the median life expectancy is 12.6 years and for a healthy the top quartile their life expectancy is going to be at least 17.6 years and you know miss miss uh, lumpworth sounds to me like she's in that top quartile so she's got probably 17 years or more that she's going to live and and i find it helpful even to share that with patients who often are surprised that, wow, I thought I was old. But you know, if you're old, if you make it to an age and you're still healthy, the likelihood you're gonna live a lot longer is really high. And so in her, I would say, you know, if anyone's gonna benefit, it would be someone like you. Now, she's also done incredibly well for the last 30 years without seeing a doctor. And so I would be sure to make sure that she understands that going down this, this road could lead to a diagnosis, including an overdiagnosis that of a cancer that would never cause her any problems. And, and the one caveat I should say about overdiagnosis is that, you know, I've been using this estimate of about 19%, but that's, um, we, we don't really know yet what the precise number is for older women versus younger women we think it's probably a little bit higher for older women but our data just aren't great in in that area but you know she would she might be overdiagnosed but i think it's also important to tell women that if they don't get the mammogram or even if their life expectancy is only 5 years and i recommend against it it doesn't mean that they can't that they might not get diagnosed with breast cancer the key is that finding that breast cancer earlier wouldn't have made a difference and i think that it's really important that people understand that because again you know Breast cancer is common in older women and you don't want them to get diagnosed and have have them say, my doctor said I I didn't need the mammogram and I wouldn't get breast cancer. Like, that's not what I said. It's that finding it earlier wouldn't have made a difference. If and and
0: lump worth like I think I do I think she's gonna I think she's gonna <laughs> shake your hand and walk out of your office with no mammogram and <laughs> that might
4: be the best thing for her um The one other plug i 'll put out for is is another um, life expectancy calculator called e prognosis. This was developed by uh, a group of geriatricians, and it takes not only age but um, comorbidity and health status and factors in and gives you an estimated life expectancy. And they even have an app that you can download that can help you think about screening decisions based on life expectancy.
0: As a uh, just quick, quick way to estimate, like for patients, a 75 year old patient, I like to say, and and tell me if you think this is wrong, I can stop doing this. But when you see a, a patient that's 75, but they're still like doing everything that they would want to, they're exercising, they look like they're in their sixties biologically, I would treat, you know, I would still screen those people as if they're in their, their sixties, if they want to. Um, and I usually say that to them. And it yeah, sounds like totally. Miss Lumpworth is in that category. She's like functionally a 65 year old woman. And so maybe, like you said, she might, she might benefit.
4: Right. If anyone's going to benefit she will, but it would also be perfectly appropriate for her to say I'd rather not. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, as long as again, I've engaged her in a discussion with this where she understands the benefits and harms and she shares with me her preferences, then I'm comfortable with that.
0: Paul, this just this just won't stop coming up. Why can't why can't everything just be black and white for us, Paul? <laughs> tell me what to do. <laughs> just tell me. <laughs> Is there a procalcitonin? Does that help with uh, a breast, <laughs> <laughs> breast cancer screening, Paul? <laughs> okay. I think we should probably get take-home points. Nancy, you've given us uh, so much of your time. We are eternally grateful. This was very, very helpful for a discussion that many of us have several times a week. So take-home points. Give us uh, a f- couple favorite ones.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think my number one take home point is that we really need to be engaging patients in these decisions that, you know, this screening is not black and white. The mammography test is just not as good as we've racked it up to be over the years. We really need better tests and better ability to distinguish uh, overdiagnosed cases from cases that we really care about.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, did you have any plugs that you wanted to any any websites or anything like that that you wanted to leave the audience with?
4: Yeah. You know, if I can just um, maybe send you some things to post on your website, including some links to these shared decision making tools, which I think are particularly useful for the busy clinician that just can't keep this in their head.
0: Sure. We will put those in the show summary on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It is now as well, so people can click on those. Uh, as they're listening to this. All right. Thank you and uh, have a good rest of your evening. Hopefully, it's as exciting as this whole thing was with with us.
4: Awesome. Thanks so much. It was really a pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: This has been
1: another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
2: That's right, Nora, because we're committed to providing you with high-value practice, change, and knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this specific episode, Nora Toronto, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Maddog Mor- you know I'm not used to that one yet. <laughs> Maddie, Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, <laughs> and Chris the True Man on Facebook. And until, until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham.
0: Uh, Claire, please keep all that in. I uh, and until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew
3: Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Nora Plow Toronto. And I would be remiss if I
1: did not thank the great Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music that you're hearing now. Also, special thanks to Claire Morgan of Not Early for editing our audio, which has to be just a Herculean task. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.
0: And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.